Tonight we're starting a new book, the amazing, wonderful book of Amos. You know, it's interesting, as we study through the Word of God, you know, if you have ever spent time in a denominational church, uh, Amos has exactly one verse that anybody ever teaches on. And so it's kind of one of those books that's often forgotten. And I think that as we uh, kind of begin to unwrap this particular book, I think you're going to see a very, very, very uh, interesting prophet. Probably the first of the writing prophets. And so in the school of prophets and in the designation of prophets, you had the major prophets, that's Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah, those guys. And you have the minor prophets, one of the minor prophets. But in the minor prophets, you have what are known as the writing prophets. And those are the guys that actually wrote their own material, as it were. They didn't use a scribe. And so here we have the first of the writing prophets. And as we begin this book tonight, I want to take a little bit of time and set the stage for you, as we do as we begin each book, so that you understand the context, you understand the time, you understand the political dynamic and all the things that are going on uh, in the world of Amos at that time. And so consequently, as he's writing, you get a feel for why exactly the Lord would have impressed upon him as the Holy Spirit is the true author of Scripture. Amen? Not men. Holy men of old wrote as they were inspired of God. Amos happened to be the human author, but the real author is the Holy Spirit of God. And so, as the Holy Spirit is moving in this very strange kind of hick prophet, this guy was a, was an oki from Muskogee. He was a hick from the sticks. He was one of those guys that lived out in the middle of nowhere. And as we'll look at that aspect of it tonight, I pray that you begin to get a little anxious for the things that lie ahead. Now, I'm going to tell you, uh, this book uh, lets it fly from the get-go. And as we study it, you're going to see that God has always had a word for the wayward world, for the nasty nation, if you will, for those who refuse to hear the word of the Lord and to do the word of the Lord. And it was true in the Old Testament times as it remains today. God's not interested in hearers only. Amen? But doers of the Word. You can know what He says and still not do it. And so one of the great problems then, and it is a great problem today, is that there are people that know what God's Word says, know what actually is ultimately expected of them, and yet they turn their back on that very substance of what God would do in our world today. And one of the reasons that we're engaged in our culture is because what God says must be true in our actions, not just our words. We have to live it. And one of the problems with the body of Christ today is that the body of Christ goes to church on Sunday and looks just like the world on Monday. One of the problems with the world is is the church is supposed to be salt and light, and we're basically sugar and not so nice. We, we, we have to be that witness that God's called us to be. Back then, God used the prophets to speak those messages basically of repent and turn back to the Lord. You're going the wrong way. You need to go the right way. And so Amos is this... Wonderful, wonderful prophet uh, that writes from a very strange place. And 
Before we dig into the Word, let's pray and ask God to bless our time in this amazing book. Father, we thank You for the power of Your Word, for the clarity with which You speak, God, through Your Word, through Your prophets. And we pray that as we hear, God, we would take to heart what the message says. God, Your Word to this prophet was bold. Your Word was sure. Your Word was true. And we pray that we would receive it as such. And so, Lord, as we study, bless our ears to hear, our minds to understand, our hearts to take heed. And, Lord, that we might remember and then do as your word says. We bless you. We praise you. We ask for your spirit now to move in us in this place. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Amos 1. And it says, the words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa. Now, I don't know about you, but when the opening sentence of, sentence of your uh, book that you write, which is supposed to be from God, says that you're a sheep herder, uh, it's not all that impressive. You know, if I came to you, it's like when, it's kind of funny, when people do their book unveilings, and whether they're Christian or non, their best foot generally goes forward. This might well be Amos's best foot. I'm a herder of livestock. I'm a sheep herder. I'm a goat herder of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. Now remember that there is a point to prophecy always. God doesn't speak things that he doesn't care about. God doesn't speak things he's not concerned with. God wouldn't take the time to speak these words were they not important. And so we need to remember when God emphasizes that he's speaking something specific that is concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And we'll get there in a moment. And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. What a start to a book. If you were a Jew and you picked this, I'm not sure I want to finish this puppy. I'm not sure I'm interested in in hearing this story. It doesn't sound all that entertaining to me if I am a Jewish person. Interestingly enough, and archaeologically, the book of Amos and its nine chapters are contained complete amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's contained in four very specific manuscripts. I've listed them there for you. They're the Cave Four, which are the... Whenever you see the designation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, when somebody says it's 4Q78C, that means it was found in Cave Four. It is at Qumran, that's the Q, and then it has the specific scroll, scroll 82, and it's line G. So that's how you know what they are. And so if you were to go do some research on the Internet, you can look at a vast majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls now. Uh, certainly all of the biblical manuscripts have been, at least one copy of them has been published. They're all there. And so this happens to be a book that we know exactly 
uh, is written, and our English version, like the book of Joel, is found intact, extant, as they say, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so as you look at this map, this little town of Tekoa, here's Jerusalem right here, here's Bethany, that's the home of Mary and Lazarus, okay, Lazarus, you know that place. There's Qumran right there, and then Tekoa was just slightly south of there and in the Judean mountains. And the reason that's important is that pretty much is no man's land. If you go to Israel today and you go uh, from Jerusalem, the main road from Jerusalem goes basically straight to the east, heads out to the Jordan River Valley. This is between the Sea of Galilee. That's the Jordan. And as you would head out to the mouth of the Jordan River, as it dumps into the Dead Sea, then you would bump into this basic region. This is also the location of the fortress of Masada. So the fortress of Masada, also here along the Dead Sea, about in that area. And if you remember our study in Luke, the fortress at Machaerus, that's right there. So this is an area that we're studying right now in Scripture. So to give you, so as you look at this area of the world, um, this actually is K4 at Qumran. So if you go to that city, and you remember where it was on the map, uh, the Judean hills are not exactly the garden spot of the world. Um, they are about as desolate a place as you possibly can get. That is actually the cave that the shepherd boy threw the rocks into uh, as he was hunting around for things in the in the hills there to the west side of the Dead Sea. And when he hucked the rocks into the cave, he heard the sound of pottery. They ended up getting up this cliff and into that cave, which goes back about 20 feet each direction, and there were contained the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so because of that, uh, we now have a wonderful copy uh, of this particular book in its entirety from ancient history. Uh, the copy that we currently have uh, dates to about 197 B.C., uh, so it's a copy that's significantly older uh, than when it was written, but still nonetheless a long time before Jesus came to the earth. And so uh, as we read through this book, this is the book that we actually uh, have in our hands, is the one that was written. When you look at the hills that surround there, so when you can get a grip on this guy writing, he is in one of the most inhospitable places on the planet Earth. And to be a herdsman there uh, is to is to try and scratch out a living from one of the most rocky, desolate uh, places on the planet Earth. It looks a whole lot like our desert southwest, except with less vegetation. And the only place that you find vegetation is down in the bottoms uh, of the wadis, or the what we would call canyons, or or barrancas, or gullies, or whatever you want to, whatever name you want to put on them, uh, where the rainwater would run down, collect in the bottoms of the canyons, and that would be where you'd have uh, sycamores. And so this little town of Engedi, you may have remembered, David spent some time there hiding from King Saul. Uh, these places are all within about 15 miles of each other. And so as you look at those sycamores growing in the bottom, when we get to that portion of this story to where he says he's a gatherer of sycamore nuts, now you can kind of look and see the fruit of a sycamore tree in the middle of nowhere in the bottom of a wadi, and this guy's herding goats out there. This is a guy who's a pretty tough character. 
This is one of those people, I don't know if you've ever had the, the opportunity as you drive north, you're, you're going to head up to uh, perhaps to, to Bishop and you're traveling along the eastern Sierra and you get out there to you know, Ridgecrest or one of those little like Red Mountain. You ever seen the people that live out there? Yeah, they, they're scary because they can actually survive where it's 110 120 degrees during the summer, and it's below freezing during the winter. That's this place. Very cold during the winter, uh, extremely hot during the summer. And so you have uh, this earthquake that's mentioned here. And I want to give you just a little bit of a sense of how accurate your Bible is and the way that we can date these things. And so as we look at ancient history and specifically the study of archaeology and combine it with the study uh, of geology, we find that there is very, very, very accurate evidence uh, to believe that this story uh, came from exactly 750, 760 B.C. And so as we look at the, the map of the region and that area of the world, it's extremely active geologically. And in fact, it's an area where there are a lot of earthquakes that occur to this day. And there have been a handful of rather large ones throughout history. One of the good things about salt lakes and areas to where there's not a whole lot going on is there's not a whole lot going on. So things like sedimentation, which happen very, very slowly over long periods of time, especially in a sea that has no fish, it's completely dead, it's not disturbed because people basically don't go in it because it's salt acid for the most part, it's almost poisonous uh, in that sense. Uh, When you do things like core samples, like this one that you see in this slide, uh, you can find the places where that sedimentation has been broken up by large layers of sediment that are stirred up. And so in this case... Some of these earthquakes that are noted on here, because that's the only way it happens, is by some type of geologic event that stirs up all the sediment on the bottom of the lake and causes junk to filter in. Uh, There were, in fact, a number of earthquakes, and there are two of them mentioned in your Bible, the one that happened in what we would call B.C. or before Christ 31, and the one that happened in B.C. 750, uh, which happens to be the earthquake uh, that leaves evidence all over the Middle East, including the destruction of a couple of major cities that are still archaeologically visible to us, like the city there that I've shown you, and this wall that's in the city of Gezer. And so we know that, in fact, this earthquake that Amos mentioned, we now have a copy of his work that's before Christ. We have the archaeological evidence that the area of the world that he says was affected by an earthquake and 750 B.C. was affected in 750 B.C. He names specifically the kings that were in power, uh, Jeroboam II, and we can now date this very, very accurately. So this guy is writing at exactly the same time as Isaiah and Jeremiah, these greater prophets, but he's down in the middle of nowhere. So we believe that for quite some time his work rather went unnoticed to the Jewish people except for those uh, in the area. And so when Dr. Steve Austin did these uh, studies of the, of the earthquake, he found it was extremely visible, and that fault line extends all the way up almost to the bottom of, guess where, Mount Carmel. And so the whole picture puts together for us the extreme accuracy of the beginning 
statements that Amos makes that puts him in the right time, at the right place, the right area of the world, with the right king on the throne. And so we believe that this is highly accurate. And so some people say, oh, it just couldn't happen. Well, unfortunately uh, for them, modern plate tectonics, we can look quite easily at the recent past. In other words, those things that are just thousands of years old. And in fact, there was an 8.2 magnitude earthquake that happened in this region in 750 B.C. And so that evidence is there. Uh, It's very, very, very clear. And so uh, he begins to write. And, And I think one of the things that uh, is interesting to me as you look at now the book of Kings, because when we look at the prophets and they mention a king, that king needs to also be living in the same time frame that they claim to be writing in. And in this case, that's exactly the case in the book of Second Kings there in chapter 14 and the book of Second Chronicles. Uh, you're going to find Uzziah and Jeroboam the second, And Jeroboam the second specifically ruled from a place that's still visible today. If you travel to the the land of Israel, and you go to the city of Megiddo, uh, you're going to find one of the largest archaeological sites in the world, and stacked one upon another, uh, depending on who you talk to, uh, whether it happens to be an Israeli guide or an American guide, you'll find out that there are at least 23 civilizations, and in some places it appears to be 30 different civilizations have occupied that same site, including, thanks to archaeology, the pottery remnants of King Jeroboam II. And so that earthquake that we just mentioned, the fault runs right through the city of Megiddo. And so the earthquake damage is there, the earthquake damage is in Gezer. And so you have mentioned this incredible earthquake. You'll see the results of that if you read the book of Isaiah. If you read the book of Micah, you find this upheaval in the earth. And so all of these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, and Michael, Micah, all talk about this same event. And lo and behold, we look at the ground upon which this was supposed to happen, and there's the evidence that this particular earthquake that's called the earthquake, so prominent in history that it's just given its name as if it were the only one, uh, did in fact happen. And so... Uh, the biblical accounts of Uzziah, and of course you all know the story of Isaiah the prophet. Uh, it was in fact that Isaiah the prophet was called in the year that King Uzziah died. There in chapter 6. And so this period of time extremely accurately uh given to us in history. And so the purpose for which Amos writes, he's going to warn the northern kingdom. Now remember, I showed you where he is. The southern kingdom is down in the area basically of Jerusalem. The northern kingdom is pretty much everything that is to the north and would extend today into modern-day Syria and to modern-day Lebanon. So the northern kingdom, known as Israel, uh, is all of that land that's basically past the Dead Sea. It would include all of the Jordan River Valley. And so that's where those ten tribes dwelled. And so you had the tribe of Levi and, and also the tribe of Judah in the south, and you had ten tribes in the north. And so he's going to write because he is a trader in wool. And so as he is a herdsman, obviously there's two things you get from goats. One's meat and the other's wool. And in trading in wool, the type of sheep that, that uh, are found in that area and the type of goats that are found in that area produce some of the finest cashmere wools, the goats do, 
uh, finest cashmere wool that is on the earth because they are very sparsely fed, and so it's a very fine wool. It doesn't grow very fast. The goats happen to be quite small. Normally the herds aren't very big because there's not enough forage, and so their wool is extremely long, though it's taken a long time for it to grow. And so that was traded in the north, and so he would have traveled along uh, the Jordan River Valley up into the north, which as you get towards uh, the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret, the Lake of Tiberias, uh, you would get to that area of the world that would be habited by the kings, and that's where Megiddo is. That's the Valley of Jezreel. And so uh, he begins to write because as he's traveling, he sees the prosperity of the Jewish people, and he sees the degradation with which they live. And that is a key for disaster for the people of every generation. Once a nation begins to live in total prosperity, once a nation begins to forget the things of the Lord, once a nation begins to live in degradation because they feel like they have everything and they no longer need God because that is often what happens. That's why... James writes, Jesus himself spoke that the deceitfulness of riches is such a danger is because wealth, riches, power, ease, all of those things have a tendency to cause us to feel like, well, hey, why do I need God? I've got everything. We don't need him. We can do without him. We're doing just fine. And in this case, King Jeroboam had attempted to cause the Jewish people to kind of inculcate the Canaanite religions into their basic daily lives. We don't want to make anybody upset. We don't want to stir the apple pot. Uh, We don't want anybody getting on our case. So you guys just go ahead and kind of hang out with the Canaanites and, and then make sure that every once in a while you make a trip into Jerusalem and go to the temple and get it all squared away. He writes to a people that have forgotten what God's done for them. And so you can see the obvious implications for us. The same merciful God is willing to forgive also calls to repentance. Okay, A lot of people like to have one side of God and not the other. When you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you get all God is. Amen? God is holy and righteous and just, and yes, He's gracious and merciful and loving and kind, but He's still at the same time holy, righteous, and just. He doesn't throw that away just because He's gracious, merciful, kind, and loving. And a lot of people feel like if God's not actually frying me on the barbecue of life, then He must approve of what I'm doing. That's a very dangerous place to get to. One of the things that's so troubling to me in our world is that we are now passing laws that fly directly in the face of God. For a vast majority of our history, especially in this country, our laws have largely represented a Judeo-Christian worldview. They are quickly becoming as anti-Christ as they can be. And the linchpin to it all is, we think it's right. We're prosperous, and we think it's right, so we must be right, and whatever God said must be wrong. 
or outdated or outmoded or maybe just isn't suited for this generation, you know, because we've come such a long ways and we're so advanced. Jeroboam thought that as he was sitting in Megiddo. Go there today and you look at his granary pits where he stored up grain. It was believed that they could survive a siege because of the wells that they had dug deep within the, the tell itself. There's a tunnel that goes down through the middle of it and goes out through. The, they could have survived a siege of over two years. No army on earth could lay siege to anyone. Not even the Romans could lay siege to someplace for a couple of years and supply their armies. And so they thought, eh, we don't need God. Notice the key verse here, and I think it's 4.12. For the Lord your God has sworn by His, look at that, holiness. By His holiness. That's the character of God. It's only attributable to God Himself. We strive to be holy as He is holy, but He alone actually is holy, and thereby possesses holiness. Is holiness. Behold, the days shall come upon you when he shall take you away with fishhooks and your posterity with fishhooks. He's, he's basically what he's saying is, look, you guys think you're all that. You think you're fooling God. You're thinking to yourself, you don't need to be like me anymore. He's saying, you wait, the day's going to come. Why? Because the prosperity of the world that they lived in had dulled the hearts of the people towards God. It's a dangerous, dangerous place. It remains a dangerous place. And so the theme basically ends up near the end of the book in chapter 8. Prepare to meet your God. Whenever we attempt to do things our way, Prepare to meet your God. Because God only strives with us for a while for His suited purposes. He does not strive forever. And what ultimately happens is no matter whether it's you or me or us as individuals, I'm saying, or us as corporately as a church, if this church begins to go wacky and all of a sudden, you know, we get into holy dancing and, you know, barbecuing, you know, wild gophers here in the sanctuary or something, I'm making stuff up as I go. We make our own cults, okay? Actually, I'd like to barbecue the gophers in my lawn now that I think about it. We, 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 it's not pleasing to God. He might let us get away with that for a while. We get out barbecue, go for Sunday. For a while. And then he's going to say, prepare to meet thy God. Because if you claim to know Him, you're going to be held to the standards. He's not going to leave you go forever. And so as we think on this book, it's very important to put it into the context and so as you look at this particular book, I want to give you a few things. If you look at the style of it, I mean, it's just it's interesting as you go through. I mean, you can kind of see the rustic, kind of hick type of guy, but he's really also very, very intelligent. He's kind of like the Duck Dynasty thing. You know, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, you know, that kind of sounds actually true. I was, I, as I read some of the 
articles is Phil Robertson is, you know, he's just talking. All he's doing is quoting Scripture in a, you know, kind of a down-home vernacular. And that is exactly what was going on uh, with Amos. He's saying, look, here's, here's how it is, guys. And when we talk about God's character, when we talk about God's nature, it doesn't change. And so when people say, you know, well, you know, it, today's today, and that was then, and this is now, that is an absurdity, because God hasn't changed. He's still holy. He's still just. He still has the same standards he had when Amos was writing, and he's got those same standards today. They have not changed one iota. He says of himself, I, the Lord, change not. I don't change. So you can bark all you want about the various social issues of our day that people seem to think we can tell God what to do. Well, divorce isn't that bad. God still hates divorce, period. God does not approve of an alternate lifestyle. He doesn't approve of it, period. And no amount of us passing laws that makes gay marriage legal is going to make it okay with God. It's still going to be wrong. He's still not okay with drunkenness. And no amount of, well, you know, it's just uh, more acceptable. And I might add that he is against sorcery, the use of pharmacia, drugging up your mind. So I don't care how many stoner laws you pass in Colorado or any other state, God's still not going to be okay with you altering your mind for the sake of being in a different set of, of mind parameters than you would be normally. God's not okay with it. And he doesn't, he laughs. His word says, I laugh at the people of the world with derision. And as we look at it, we have to see this the way God sees it. He says, look, this is the way I've spoken to my people from day one. Don't expect me to change because you live in the year 2014. I'm not changing. I meant what I said. I said what I meant. And as you, we begin this journey through the book of Amos, he, he's going to say, look, guys, listen up. You need to take note. It actually was about 30, maybe 40 years between the ministries of Elisha, who took over for Elijah, to the writing of Amos. But in that short, infinitesimately on the basis of eternity, period of time, super small, very tiny window. Let's say it was 50 years. In 50 years, the whole world had changed. In 50 years, the whole world had changed. Sound like any other nation on earth that you know of? Look at our world. In that period of time, you go from Elijah on Mount Carmel going, look, we aren't putting up with your stuff. You go get your prophets, and you let them chant. They can cut themselves. They can do whatever they want. And I'm going to build my altar to my God, the Lord God of hosts, Yahweh, 
Jehovah, I'm building my altar to him. You build your God to your God. You build your altar to your God. And you guys do your thing, and I'll do my thing, and let's see whose God wins. You went from that kind of boldness to the invasion of the Assyrian army, to the Egyptians standing watching to see what would happen, ready to pounce on Israel like that. The geopolitical dynamic had changed. Can I tell you that God doesn't care about geopolitical dynamics changing? He's still God. And just because there's a new kid on the block, he's not altering the way he thinks about humanity because there's a new kid on the block. Well, you know, the Assyrians might come and wipe us out. Yeah, they might. And the Chinese might come and wipe us out. We're the Russians. Our, our world is much the same. It changes very, very, very rapidly. But not your God. Prosperity had come. Elijah's telling him, man, you guys need to get right with God and you need to do it right now. That lasted about ten years. That's all it was. It's strange how things like 9-11 happen, and, and people are just they're, they're up and, oh, i got to get back to church. I can't tell you how many people. i got to get back to church. Man, I think God's speaking to me. And a couple of weeks later, well, you know, I went to church. Time to get back to the world. God wants us to stick with Him. People then didn't do it, and people now don't do it. A very dangerous place. Because our God's a jealous God. I had a conversation this afternoon. You know what? God's got all of these things that we kind of like to separate out. You've got his justice and his judgment and his wrath, and you've got all those kind of things on one side. And people are like, well, we just kind of put those away. Don't really like I don't want to talk about those. Then on the other side, you've got all oh, these love. The problem is, they're both true. He didn't cease being a God who judges all sin to become the God of love. He is fully the God that is love. His word declares that, by the way. God is love. Verse John says. Okay? God's love, period. But he also is holy and just and righteous and can't even look at sin. You realize that? God can't look at sin. So when he sees the world going the wrong way, what do you think he wants to have happen? He wants people to go, ah, displeasing to God, let's go the other direction. Because we'd really like to have this side. So if you want God's love, and you want His mercy, and you want His grace, and you want His care and kindness and tenderness, you need to remember that He still has a side that has to judge sin. He's holy, and He's righteous. And that really is how God begins to answer uh, the world as it was then. There was a new superpower on the block. It was Assyria. They were entering the international stage 
Uh, Egypt was kind of bumbling off into history, if you will. And the Egyptians largely were a peace-loving people, except for an occasional uh, Pharaoh who wasn't too nice to other people. But they largely were peace-loving. But the Assyrians, uh uh-uh. They had been vile and evil and had every intention of destroying any one of the nations that they overtook and did. And so as they emerged, uh, basically there was a new player on the world stage. And Amos is looking at what's going on in the land and saying, you know what? God's going to use these heathen nations to discipline us unless we turn. God's going to use these heathen nations to discipline us unless we turn. God's going to use these heathen nations to discipline us unless we turn. Now, if he did that to his his own people, the Jewish people, who had not yet the age of grace, amen? And we have the age of grace. What do you think God's thinking when he looks at us? I'd say, ouch. I'd say, oops, that's not going to turn out so well. Now, praise God, he sees individual hearts as well as he sees the direction a nation travels. And he is always taking care of his remnant. But that doesn't give the church the excuse of saying, well, he's going to take care of me. We need to be the voice that says, enough. This has to stop. I got into a little heated debate a few days ago, last week, the end of. It wasn't too bad. I was on the phone. And I'm talking, and the subject of what happened at the Rose Parade came up. And I just said it was an abomination. I just flat out called it what it was. It was an abomination. That's what it was. Well, you know, they're just trying to fight for equality. And I said, in whose universe do two men become equal to a man and a woman in the eyes of God? In marriage. He invented marriage. He knows that it takes a man and a woman to procreate and make children. And I think there is a difference between two men and a man and a woman. And that's all it was. Well, you know, they have several rights. And it just went off on this tangent of... Something that God is looking at and going, you're missing the picture. We need to get the picture. God's picture. Not the world's picture. God's picture. And then stand boldly for what God says. You see, the Jews at that time desperately needed to get right with God. Desperately needed to get right with God. And I think there's a lot of Christians today that desperately need to get right with God. Because they're not walking the walk. They're not even talking the talk. They're, they're someplace totally different than anything that you could possibly come up with from Scripture. And I'm telling you, the Assyrians were on the horizon then. They're on the horizon now. Anybody thinks that our world's a safe place is just not too in touch. You look at our world today. It's a crazy world that we live in. 
It, it, it all it takes is one nutcase, one North Korean barely out of the teenage years leader with his finger on a nuclear weapon, and Armageddon is unleashed on this earth. That's all it takes. Millions of people will die. And yet we say, well, you know, I just don't know. I don't think that can happen. We didn't think World War II would happen either. Matter of fact, after Hitler invaded the Sudetenland, we still said, well, he's not going to do anything more. He's just kind of taking care of business. It wasn't until the Blitzkrieg began to happen that we go, oh, maybe this is not so good. They're bombing England now. You see, with our military might, with the Russians' military might, with the Chinese military might, with the Pakistanis' nuclear weapons, they are not our friends. Who knows? The people need to get right with God. When the world is dangerous, it's a real good time to be right with God. We, we, we need to see God move in our world. And He's not going to move when the church, supposed to be His voice, His salt, His light, is silent. Just stand, well, you know, I don't want to get anybody mad at me. I'm not telling you to go intentionally try and make everybody upset and angry. Try and find a civil way to have a discussion with people about the truth. And, and at the end of the day, stand on the truth. Because the truth will set people free. A lie will make sure they're damned. That's the world that Amos is writing to. The very things that were on the horizon then are on the horizon today, except they're infinitely worse. Infinitely worse. So I shared with you, think, think about Russia has the same basic submarine technology that we have. They park a ballistic missile submarine off the coast of New York, someplace in the North Sea. You're talking from launch time to impact, five minutes. 48 missile tubes, each one with at least seven, as many as 12 nuclear warheads that descend once they're launched from about the edge of space, hypersonic, do the math. 48 times 10 is 480 cities gone like that. One submarine. They got 14 of them. We have 18 of them. It's a dangerous world. Who was the defense of the Jewish people then? God. Who is the defense of the body of Christ to this day. God. The Lord Jesus Christ is our defense. Frankly, I'm not actually horribly concerned about getting nuked. I'm going to heaven. I kind of like to be at ground zero if one goes off. I'm not real fond about having my skin melted off or anything, but... Uh, what I'm saying to you is, is when you're steadfast in the things of the Lord then come what may. But when you're not, what assurance do you have that you even know the Lord? 
I want to walk in that assurance. And the way that I walk in that assurance is by being a doer of the word. And so Amos begins to speak. He's saying, look, guys, this isn't going to go good for us. This is going to be a bad deal. We're doing the wrong thing, and we're doing a lot of it. And things need to change. The kings were strong. Our kings are strong. Our military is strong. Our nation, as messed up as it is, is strong. It's the strongest nation on earth. But it's not stronger than God. It's never a good thing to poke fun at the Lord. It's never a good thing to make a habit out of using His name in vain. It's not a good thing to wander around claiming how far you've come from the things of God. We're supposed to be announcing the body of Christ is supposed to be getting as close as we can to Jesus. Amen? That's what we're supposed to do. The people then were seeing exactly how far away from God they could get and still be a Jew. And I say to you, that's kind of what the church is doing. I don't know if any of you caught the interview with Larry King and Joel Osteen. But it's just like, gag me with a spoon. It's like, why don't you just call it what it is? He says, well, yes, I still see homosexuality as a sin, but I'm not going to preach on it. I'm not going to... Well, then who is? Who is? If a pastor of a church of 25,000 people will not tell the truth to the body of Christ and has a public forum like the Larry King Show watched by millions of people to just lovingly say, look... God says that homosexuality is an abomination. The New Testament echoes. Jesus himself clearly said, I haven't come to abolish the law, not even a jot or a tittle of it, but to fulfill it. The law is still what I said. Paul writes that people who live in that lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Plain statement. So because I love all people as a pastor, I'm not going to tell a homosexual they're okay to stay a homosexual. I'm not going to tell a drunk it's okay to stay a drunk. I'm not going to tell people it's okay to be a a harbinger of divorce. You've got to get out of that adulterous relationship. You need to stop fornicating. He had... 30 seconds to preach the truth. And he wouldn't do it. And why am I saying this? Because when high-profile people who supposedly represent God won't speak the truth, then the people get the wrong impression. Now all of a sudden you got, well, you know, this mega-pastor said it's okay. He said it was a sin, but you know, really, what is a sin anyway? That's just a man-made list of rules. Because when you listen to a lot of pastors, that's all it is. It's not, thus says the Lord. And for us, it is thus says the Lord. God's Word says it. I believe it. We need to do it. It's not up to me to determine which parts I don't like. That was the world that Amos was writing in. They were living the good life. 
The wondrous days of David and Solomon had passed. They'd gone through some rough times. But now they're going to be surrounded by Syria and Philistia and Ammon and Moab and these nations that are still there today. And we'll look at those next week. It's very telling. The, the Hebrews basically had been kind of formerly fighting farmers, if you will. You know, they were kind of, they would be out in the field and then they'd come in and gather up together and go to battle. They now kind of had a little bit more uh, staid way of life. The kings had some power. They, they were cultured. They were proud. Uh, but they were also very indignant and indifferent towards the things of the Lord. They told him, we don't believe you, and then did basically nothing with what they knew. They had taken a, a giant step, if you will, in one way. They had been an agricultural nation, and now they, there's a subsistence economy, and now they were actually becoming more urbanized. They had larger cities, more wealth, more trading dollars had come in. And during that time, God gave them the temple. He said, here, this is my place, this is my dwelling place, this is where I'm going to live. You can come meet with me here. They went from that to the prophets, wandering around in the hillsides. Because the temple didn't do any good. And this gigantic shining edifice of the temple. Ultimately, Herod would build this wonderful, monumental structure. That when we read the non-biblical accounts, it's just staggering the beauty of Herod's temple. Overlaid with gold. And there it was. It's kind of like a lot of churches today. It's this big, huge building, but there's no God inside of it. There's no holiness coming out of it. And so, that produced the King Jeroboam, who tried to blend the two. Isn't that what our world's doing right now? Well, we'll just kind of... Just, you know, if you just kind of tone down the Christian rhetoric, you heard that term? The Christian rhetoric, like it's not truth. It's rhetoric. You just say it and it becomes it. Just tone down the... We can all just get along. We'll just peacefully kind of coexist with evil. That was how King Jeroboam believed as well. And in fact, he inculcated the calf worship of the Canaanites. He said, so go over there and worship, and then come back here and get squared away with Yahweh, and then go over there, and then that way nobody will be mad at anybody else. We won't have any division. You remember what Jesus said? I have come to divide. I have come to, to put a sword even between family members at times. Because the truth is the truth. And we are believing the truth. When we say He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him, what we're saying is, Lord, we believe You. That was the world that Amos was writing in. And so he comes with this thunder, and uh, the earthquake mentioned there is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9. It says, interestingly, in Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of the exact same earthquake, you talk about not getting it. The bricks are falling down, but we'll build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we'll just change them to cedars. Read Isaiah 9. 
the people are going, well, you know, yeah, we had an earthquake, and yeah, I don't, well, that's not God. God's not trying to talk to us. Nothing happens accidentally in God's plan. Amen? From our perspective, it was an earthquake. An unplanned seismic event. From God's perspective, He's shaken the earth. Saying, look, I'm still here. And I haven't changed. You need to do the changing. In that day and time... We talk about the sexual revolution of the 60s here in our country. They had the sexual revolution of the Canaanites back then. It was the same deal. Nothing's changed in the last 2,750 years. Same problems existed then. And the Jews liked the Canaanites. Well, you know, I mean, ever been to a Canaanite party? Whoo! You know, the whole Jewish thing, I mean, I mean we get around saying, Hava Gnagela, Hava Gnagela. You know, it's not that big a deal to us. But the Canaanite parties. Wine, women, and song. That's the world that Amos was speaking to. I would say not much has changed. They were immoral, they were drunks. They were grossly idolatrous. They killed their own children. Hmm. Hmm. What God said then, He says today. Repent. Turn. Now you can imagine, as we wrap this up tonight, a a guy like Phil Robertson going into, you know, maybe New York or L.A. or D.C., you know, kind of from the sticks with a powerful message. It's going to contain the vernacular of someone from the sticks, but it's going to have the message for the people. And so it's going to be in your face. God's going to use that. I can't even imagine. In Amos chapter 4, one of my favorite lines He calls the society ladies of Samaria, he calls them the kind of Bashan. That's the equivalent of calling them cows. Bashan was known as the land of bulls and cows. You kind of Bashan. You know, it's like, he brings even the the whole agricultural aspect to, to the things he says. He's like, man, you're acting like a bunch of cows. Hosea spoke, if you remember, out of love. Amos is going to speak from the law. He's just going to tell them like it is. Hosea spoke from the heart. Amos is speaking right here from the head. He's going, look, guys, if God did this in times past, He gave us the law. This is what it says. We're supposed to do it. Hosea was kind of reaching out, and Amos is going, look, God's outraged. We don't need to reach out. We need to get squared away in our own house what's going on. Hosea was kind of that fervor of the Lord, and Amos is just going to, here it is, conclusive evidence. You're going to see some things in here, and he uses a bunch of formulas, like three transgressions and four, which, by the way, total to seven, which means God's done. Three transgressions and for four. Look, 
I've allowed you to complete your little cycle of sin right here. And then he goes on and he uses phrases like, because and therefore. That's the cause and effect spiritually that we know in the, in the Bible. Uh, there in, in Galatians chapter 6 is so reaping what you've sown. Yeah? Because you did this, therefore you're going to get this. Can I remind you that hasn't gone away? That's still a spiritual truth. You will reap what you've sown. And if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh corruption. It's, it's, that's the way of things, as far as God's concerned. This guy's a tough cookie. He, he's going to say things like, You have not returned. Hear this word. He's going to speak in very dogmatic terms like, I will. And all at the same time saying, Look, I'm just a gatherer of sycamore fruit. But thus says the Lord. And I like that. Because there's probably not one of us in here who isn't a little higher on the social plane than a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Okay? There's not a single person in here that I would say, well, you're below a herdsman of Tekoa and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Maybe there's a couple of you in here, but I don't think so. So if God could use a guy like Amos to speak the truth, he can use any of us to speak the truth. The question is, will we speak it? Will we say, as Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. Just give me the message and let me go preach it. These twin kingdoms were enjoying all kinds of success, and Amos is about to rain on their parade and say, look, guys, you better see it for what it is. And the wonderful message in this, and you're going to see it throughout, is what God does. God does because He's a God of love. Amen? So if He gives us a message of, hey, you're going the wrong way, why is He giving us the message? Because He's a God of love. He can't be anything but. But He's also holy, and so His message, I'm holy, this is what I expect, leads me to tell you, you need to not go that way, you need to go this way, because I'm a God of love. And I want to have a relationship with you that is loving. So when God says turn around, He doesn't say because He's trying to take away. He's trying to give. He He wants to give His He wants to give good gifts to His kids. So His word plainly declares. And so I pray as we embark next week with the first chapter, that we're going to see this kind of crafty country boy begin to speak some very powerful words. And I think as we read it, it will give us the boldness to speak the things that God tells us to speak as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time. Thank You for Your goodness, Lord. We, we pray that as we ponder Your Word, Lord, as we think on it, Lord, as we take it in and mull it over in our minds and in the heart of hearts, God, as Your Word declares... Lord, we pray that it would sink deep and we would be uh, instructed in a way that, God, we could put these things to practice. Lord, help us to be bold. Lord, as we enter this new year with all of the challenges, God, the things that lie ahead. Lord, as we watch the kids in this community get hooked on drugs. and Father, we, we, we sit around and we talk about making things legal. God, as we see marriages fly apart, we 
we turn a blind eye to promiscuity. God, as we watch our world crumble before our eyes, we say, well, it's not crumbling at my house. God, that's just not what you want from us. You want us to have a voice, and it's supposed to be your voice. And so, Lord, give us that boldness to speak the truth. Lord, help us to be loving and kind, but Lord, help us to speak the truth. Lord, help us to preach it, teach it, live it. We love you. We thank you for this time this evening. Bless us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to be taking about a chapter a week, so get ready. Read ahead all of chapter 1 next time.